Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane, and I'm a psychotherapist, author of the and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director at our studio. This show is about what matters most in our life, our minds, thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share a tip of the week with you about having a guilt-free break. Yes, we all deserve it. And not only we deserve it, we should have it. And we'll share why. Then I chat with Jamie Lerner. She's the co-author of the book, The Ever-Loving Essence of You. We will be talking about the art of allowing and the essence of being responsible. And then I share with you the latest research about allowing autonomy in the team, creating great productivity and customer satisfaction, which leads to my next guest, which I chat with Kion Gohar. He is an internationally sought after public speaker, a TED Talk speaker, and the co-author of Competing in the New World of Work, How Radical Adaptability Separates the Best from the Rest. Kian has coached um, the leadership teams of a dozen of Fortune 500 companies, and today we'll be talking about radical adaptability. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel and podcast. Connect with me through any of the social media, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, any of it, Facebook. And um, I'd love to hear from you. Love, love to hear about your comments, your experiences, and all of it. But first, here's a tip of the week. Here's a tip of the week. With the pandemic forcing many people to work from home, the concept of taking a break has become a novelty. Most of the structures that were set for us by the society, school, and work arena have changed. So how can we give ourselves a break? In a recent survey, people have reported that a high level of unemployment is due to people being just burnt out. They quit because they're burned out of what they were doing and how they were doing it. I work with couples who work from home and their hours of work have turned into 16 hours or all day versus the time they went into the office. I work with a mother whose children are schooling from home due to the pandemic and have lost all her hours to handle the children's studying and monitoring as well as cooking, cleaning and all of it. I also work with a gentleman that is at work, but since many of his coworkers are ill, he must do overtime to pull all the load. I work with a career woman, a mom, a wife, who thinks that being home has its own set of work. So the only time she gets a break is five minutes before laying down on her bed and falling asleep. I work with a corporate CEO who sees his breaks as time for him to handle his email for all of his family business matters. So taking a break is an essential need, not just the far-fetched idea of luxury, it means taking the time for yourself, paying attention to your body, quieting your mind, experiencing pleasure, having fun just for sake of having fun and playing allowing yourself to balance life with an ample number of meaningful breaks that reduces physical and mental stress, anxiety, depression, improved mood with um, higher levels of positive thoughts and emotions resulting in higher self-esteem and confidence. Recreational activities also reduce cortisol levels, blood pressure, and heart rate. Breaks can give you a boost in mindfulness, looking at the bigger picture, not sweating the small stuff, reducing mental fatigue and motivation, and a renewed focus on the tasks that we got stuck at or less agile at. You deserve to take a guilt-free break. Yes, a guilt-free break. Walk in the park, 
watch a favorite sitcom, listen to music, doodle a little bit on a piece of paper, paint, draw, play with clay, pottery, exercise, yoga, meditation, chat with a friend, have a cup of coffee while you enjoy it, you know, the nature outside of your window. Take a 20-minute nap. Listen to a piece of binaural beat music. Dance with your favorite music. Play with your pet. Have sex. Cook. Eat. A fun, healthy meal. Get a massage. Tai Chi. Play pantomime or the front. Make a short movie from your pictures. Take a photo of nature, jigsaw puzzle, play a video game, write a short story, go to a movie, go to a stand-up comedy, zip line, kayak, play sports, run, get on a swing, reorganize your closet, rearrange your furniture, go window shopping, color your hair for fun, play cards with your friends, learn magic, learn to juggle balls and learn a new language, blog whatever else your heart desires. Allow your breaks to be intentional. Pay attention to your body. Insist, insist on feeling joy and pleasure within that time. The purpose is for you to take your focus off what you are doing and attend to another higher order need. Studies show that productivity rises when life is balanced. You will feel all around fulfillment when your life is balanced with meaningful productivity as well as lots of physical and mental intriguing fun. So schedule your breaks in your calendar the same way you schedule your work and commitments. Honor yourself. You deserve it. And for more observational skills and integrational skills, go to my book, Life Reset, the awareness integration path to the life you want. Thank you. Well, for all of you who are in an intimate relationship, in a marriage, you've had a bad one and you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to get into another one, but you really need some skills. Guess what? We're going to have a two-day workshop it's going to be February uh, 26th and 27th, Saturday and Sunday on Zoom, 12 hours on Zoom, two days. Um, it's called us, the us in between. Awareness integration path to intimate relationship. We're going to look at you. How do you operate in an intimate relationship? What are some of the skills that are really, really needed to have an amazing relationship? It will be um, myself and two of my colleagues. I'm on a look at Herman, who's a, also a yoga teacher. We're going to teach you how to calm yourself down in an intimate relationship when it, you get boggled up and you, you know all of what you've learned doesn't show up and all of the past path shows up. And another coach and the therapist, Arash Tagav, Dr. Arash Tagavi, will be with us. So you're going to have three of us, February. 26th and 27th, 12 hours in Zoom. We love to have you there. So contact us at awarenessintegrationinstitute at gmail.com or fujanzain at gmail.com and uh, sign up. We'd love to have you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back again. Um, this is Dr. Fujian Zain, and I'm excited to be with Jamie Lerner. She is the co-author of the book, The Ever-Loving Essence of You. She can put a fresh spin on just about anything that we're going to throw at her. So we're going to try throwing at her different things. We will be talking about uh, um, essence, essence of responsibility for each person and the art of allowing. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you for inviting me. Jamie, I know one of the aspects that is really passionate for you is the essence of responsibility and accountability that each person have to themselves and to the world. Um, can you share with us uh, your perspective on that? And I know that the concept of allowing is important for you. So can you share a little bit about both of those concepts? Yes, I can. Um, you know, I think that we are in a society 
where the victim is applauded. And unfortunately, that does not give us um, much of an incentive to take personal responsibility. However, I think when we do take personal responsibility, we understand that we have a lot of power in our lives to create anything that we would like for ourselves. And so the whole notion of connecting with yourself, knowing yourself, um, hearing yourself, tuning into yourself, I think is one that we don't hear as often as um, society asking us to look outside of ourselves for the answers. And I like to help people help themselves tune back in so that we can begin to hear our inner knowing, our inner being, connect with ourselves and start taking personal responsibility for what it is that we're actually wanting for ourselves. One of the most important factor, as you were sharing, um, as I've you know, been a therapist for 30 years and work with this essence, um, I've noticed that a lot of times going in, if the mentality and the thought process and the way that we have created that story is that I'm a victim, the same way you said, uh, regardless of what has happened, then um, when they go inside, when a person goes inside, a lot of what they hear is the same concept of how victim I am. Um, and I hear something else from what you're saying. And I'm hearing you saying that there's a, things might happen to us, but the way that we come toward it, it's different. So there's an inner power that you can tap into versus your inner powerlessness in a sense. Um, is that what I'm hearing from you? Yes. And I think that when you give people permission, to look at their story, the story that they've been telling over and over and over again about things that have happened. And of course, things have happened to all of us. But when you ask them if they could look at it from their right here and now adult perspective, the story is different because we're not small anymore. We're grownups and we are then more able to pull the PowerPoints of what had happened then now and recreate a different story to kind of reframe what had happened and to see it as for most of us, our superpower, because we would not be who and where we are right now if those things did not occur in the past. So- Very true, very true with what you're saying that the, our history, um, uh, the angle that we take uh, about our history can, move us toward um, growth, what we call a post-trauma growth, or it could break us if we keep sharing with, the, with ourselves and the world that I've been wounded and I am, um, I'm scarred and the scar is in a way that is never gonna heal. So if I take an approach of it's never gonna heal, uh, that I'm living in the wound, in the woundedness consistently versus shifting the story of, yes, it happened to me. And I can, I can look at it from another uh, angle and see how much resilience I've had, how much power I've had, how much growth I've had from it. Absolutely. And once again, I think that as helping professional people, it's great when we can give people permission, the option to do that. So where are you now? And this angle keeps showing up in all areas. For example, it shows up in our intimate relationship and romantic and marriages. It shows up in our business. It shows up in our career. It shows up in the way that we are with society. So if we shift the angle, we could shift any, in any area of our life in a sense. Absolutely. And there's a lot of power in that a lot of how. So most people don't even know how they feel when they're telling their story. And when we ask people, how are you feeling when you're telling the story, and they're really able to tune in, most often they're not feeling really good. And so what can you do to change even a one line or one sentence or one paragraph of your story or just the tone of the story that you're telling? so that you could step into a better feeling place and start creating something that you are wanting for your relationships, for your career, 
for your, I mean, it just goes on and on and on because the theme is pretty consistent as it runs through every aspect of our lives. Jamie, share a little bit about the concept of allowance and allowing. Allowing is a practice, I think. And when we are knowing what we're wanting for ourselves and very clear, then we tend to um, extend that same courtesy onto other people and allow them to make the choices that they want for themselves. So it's pretty wonderful to be clear about what you're wanting for you and to mind your own business and then allow another to make whatever that personal choice is that they have made for themselves. And when we do that, that means that we are not in a judgmental place at all. We're in a really nice allowing place with ourselves and other people. And that's a very good feeling way to interact with others. Very much, especially in a communication. Again, whether we're talking about, you know, marriages, intimate relationships, businesses, talking to our coworkers, in a social construct right now where, you know, people even get in a fight with each other um, on social media, let alone when they're sitting together or as the neighbors, if they have a different ideology, whether that ideology is political or social or, um, you know, uh, some sort of activism, it appears that, um, the righteousness shows up and the allowance goes away. This is true. Although when we are not knowing what we're wanting for ourselves and we're very unclear, we tend to be paying much more attention to what other people are doing. And I think that's a great indication that in the moment we are disconnected from ourselves, that it would be great if we could then ask ourselves, well, wait a minute, what is it that I'm wanting for me? Why am I putting my attention outside of myself and paying so much attention to what other people are choosing for themselves? Well, this has absolutely nothing to do with me. And I'm, I'm sensing two, two different conversations. One is if someone knows something that they want and they become so righteous about it that they're not allowing any other human being to also want what they want. And then the other side, as I hear you, is knowing what you want, um, trusting what you want, and, and uh, also allowing other human beings to be who they are and to share who they are. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Yes, because when we become righteous about anything, we are disconnected. When we are clear for ourselves, there's no reason to be righteous. We're clear. And so we're not influenced by what other people are suggesting that we do or not do. We're allowing ourselves to be clear for ourselves and we're allowing the other to be clear for themselves. And then there's just ease between the two different um, You know, it, it, it's interesting now because talk about even COVID and, and vaccines. You know, I have a group of friends that are anti-vax and then there are a group of people that are pro-vax and can those two groups sit together, be together, share together and allow each other to have those very clear and definite opinions for themselves. If so, that's allowing. And that's a really nice place to be with somebody. There's an essence of acceptance of, of uh, not only who I am, but, um, but that every person, there's a uniqueness to them. And I can just be with that and share and uh, collaborate in, you know, whether it's again, a family system or a work system or a society where I can be um, like going back to what you said at the beginning, I can go back and be, I can be responsible, accountable, uh, trustworthy of who I am, what my intentions are, what works for me. And because I respect myself as a being that has all of this, then I can project the same concept to others, which is they have the right, they're allowed to be who they are, they get clear with who they are, and I can uh, we can co-live together, kind of co-create together, be together with this uh, essence of allowance. So I first start with me 
um, allowing and trusting and connecting, and then through that, allow others to be similar to that. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Exactly. So you never have to make anybody else wrong for you to be right for yourself. Which so, allows a lot of peacefulness. It certainly does. And it really, I think, reminds us to mind our own business. <laughs> I like this sentence, mind your own business. I'm going to mind my own business. <laughs> Share what that means to you, minding my own business. Well, I think a lot of times when we're looking outside of ourselves, it is because we are not sitting comfortably within ourselves. And that's a great reminder, you know, and if you catch yourself, laugh about it, because that's also a great way to reconnect yourself with you. If you're focused on you, stay in your own lane. Um, I think that you don't have a lot of time to be having a commentary about everybody else, what they're doing, what, how they look, how they dressed, what they're saying. Oh my goodness, that I think is, um, that is just the opposite of tuning in. Beautiful. Um, Jamie Lerner, everyone, you can find her at jamie Learner, J A M I E dash L E R N E R dot com, and uh, get her book, The Ever Loving Essence of You. Um, Jamie, last minute, anything we haven't talked about that you really, really want people to know? Uh, love yourself, trust yourself, know yourself, and laugh a lot. Oh, I love that. Laugh a lot. Um, and um, when people find you at jamie-learner.com, um, how could they contact you? What are they contacting you for? Uh, what is it that you're offering them besides your wonderful book? Um, everything about me is on the website, including um, there's a lots of free, wonderful information and podcasts. This will also be available there too. I also have a service called the Lovely texting option and um that is also available on the website so beautiful jamie learner everyone please 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 go to jamie-learner.com and get her book the ever loving essence of you thank you so much for being with us thank you don't go anywhere everyone we'll be right back All of you amazing psychotherapists and life coaches around the world, you have the opportunity to become certified in the awareness integration theory and uh, the, the interventions, which will give you access to be featured in uh, the awarenessintegration.com and the Fujian app, uh, which in both they people will be able to find you and um, want to share with you and work with you, uh, knowing that you are going to be proficient in giving them the awareness integration model. So it's important for all of you to come in to the next course that we have. Um, it will be February 18th to 20th and um, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's going to be 18 hours online. The awareness integration therapy uh, or theory is a multi-modality psychological educational model that enhances self-awareness, releases past traumas and psychological blocks, reduces the symptoms of anxiety and depression, and promotes clarity and a positive attitude to learn and implement new skills for an effective, productive, and successful life. And in this 18 hours, you will be learning um, about nine principles of the model nine phases of the intervention and multiple applications that you may have. So I'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and uh, send me an email to awarenessintegrationinstitute at gmail.com or fujanzain at gmail.com. I will love to hear from you and have you at our next course. Thank you. Here's the latest research. Software development teams, given the freedom to tackle their projects in whatever ways they choose, 
are more productive and have more satisfied customers than teams that follow a central corporate standard, according to a new research that just was published in January 2022 from the University of Texas in Austin. The research suggests that organizations that take a hands-off approach to the structure and governance of project teams create an environment of creative flexibility. This built-in flexibility makes teams more responsive to needed changes in the software they're building, boosting performance and customer satisfaction. Researchers stated, by giving greater autonomy to your team, you allow them to exercise greater judgment about what would actually work based on their project's requirement. Um, the researchers said that they show that there's no one right way of achieving superior project performance. No one size fits for all. Researchers tested the performance of both agile and traditional project teams over 15 months in a, a real world policy experiment at a major software company based in India. The company had 125,000 software developers around the world working on projects that adhere to an ideal operations profile closely monitored through a central unit. Senior company directors wanted to learn whether a greater autonomy for software development teams would hurt or help performance. For the study, they implemented a policy change granting greater autonomy to certain teams and agreeing to provide data on key performance measures for both autonomous and non-autonomous teams before and after the policy change. Tracked productivity and customer satisfaction on 461 projects. Managers on 146 projects were granted autonomy to design their projects the way they wanted using three main controls, location and time differences among team members, level of process diversity, such as lean or structured, and level of managerial control. Guess what? Managers of autonomous teams could each choose what type of structure worked well for them and their project team versus having something dictated to them by the central point of contact. Value added increased 39% for teams that switched to an autonomous structure compared with projects that did not. Guess what? Customer satisfaction also increased. The Agile team's rating increased 2.95% as a result of this new policy. There you go. People need to be autonomous. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back everyone again. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane, and I am so excited to have Kian Gohar with me. He inspires the world's leading organizations to harness innovation and moonshots to solve complex problems. A former executive director of XPRIZE Foundation and Singularity University, Kian has coached the leadership teams of dozens of Fortune 500 companies. He's a sought after public speaker on innovation, a TED speaker, and has been featured on CNBC and NPR and Access. He is a graduate of Northwestern University, the London School of Economics and Harvard Business School. He is the co-author of Competing in the New World of Work, How Radical Adaptability Separates the Best from the Rest. It is wonderful to have you, Kian. Thank you so much for having me, Fujian. It's my honor, pleasure to be here. I love the book. I went through the book and uh, I learned a lot. Um, a new world of work is emerging, definitely, with all that is changing, you know, due to pandemic, due to technology. And uh, I was listening actually to your TED talk, and um, and it was so um, inspiring to see that there are innovations that are happening that at one point were like, no, I have no idea what that is, and then suddenly. Uh, the world captures it. And in your book, you're also talking about um, if you're not up to par, looking ahead and not only leading toward a new world, but capturing and bringing your team and the way that the structure is with the team needs to change in order for you to be um, adapting your world into a new world. So share with us. Thank you. Um, 
So obviously the pandemic changed everybody's lives and uh, changed how we live, how we work, how we socialize. And I think for the better part of the last two years, we've been sort of hoping when we would finally go back to normal or go back to work. And, and the reality is we thought that would happen in, let's say last summer when we got the vaccines and then the offices would open, but then they didn't because we had Delta. So we waited a little bit longer and then we thought it'd be November, December, then Omicron happened. And the reality is that we're never gonna go back to the way that we worked in the past. Um, this is a new era. And I really wanna impress upon um, listeners to think about how the world has totally changed and how do they um, beef up their organizations and leadership and their teams to be able to succeed and thrive uh, in this new world. And the pandemic very much accelerated many of the trends that were happening already for a long time in technology and all of a sudden now become digital and disruptive and uh, living in this uh, very virtual world. Now, this new world of work, uh, which will eventually open itself up once, um, let's say, Omicron is, is, uh, goes away a little bit, um, is very different than what the past was. Um, it, the old structures that we had about how we work have really melted away. And some of the rules have changed around inclusion, around participation, around resilience and mental health of your teams, and how do you really accomplish all these things. So what we did was um, we did this research project for the last two years with Harvard Business School to really find out what were the most successful teams in the world doing to be able to thrive in a world of radical change. And on the back of that research, we've written this book, which is very much a roadmap of how do you make your team radically adaptable to be able to thrive in any kind of uncertainty that the future throws at you. You share um, how the old organization is um, hierarchical where the new uh, needs to adapt to a co-elevation of each other and the team together. Um, the uh, looking at what the agility is and then talking about the resilience, foreseeing the change, seeking constant reinvention um, and uh, being fluid, uh, talked about kind of, uh, you know, not having a, a firm, having a firm structure, but not having a rigid structure that it can adapt consistently into whatever is showing up. Um, you also talk about collaborate through inclusion. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think the pandemic um, was very clear in terms of it doesn't matter so much where you work, but how your team shows up to work. And in the past, we were in a in a in an office uh, kind of like this, and uh, the people you interacted with were the ones that were oftentimes directly next to you, or the people. Let's say you were a leader or a CEO, you would go find them and go into a boardroom. But it was always typically in the, the confines of a building. Maybe you had different buildings, different places across the world, but for the most part, it was a physical structure. The beauty of what happened over the last two years is that because we were all on the same uh, technology in terms of Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whichever virtual web conferencing tool you use, we all had the same physical real estate, which is a square, just a little square on the bottom of the screen, whether you were the CEO or whether you were a junior person or whether you were a mid-level manager. And so this was actually an opportunity to go beyond what we did in the past, which was look at leadership and management inside the four walls of a particular office. Now you can actually bring in many different kinds of voices from all across the organization that previously weren't invited, let's say to your boardroom meeting or your leadership team meeting. Now you can actually team out dramatically to bring in many different kinds of voices into your conversation, into your decision-making process and allow people to be able to have a voice in how uh, the organization is leading. And that was a beautiful thing because it opened up the space for a lot of people who made, first of all, not be invited to these uh, other conversations. And second, even if they were invited, maybe they didn't feel psychologically safe to be able to raise their voice because um, sometimes it can be intimidating to talk in front of a very large audience. And these technologies of video conferencing allowed us to, first of all, invite a lot more people to the main conversation. And then it allowed us to uh, go into breakout rooms, into small rooms where people can be in groups of three or four and be able to actually really share what's on their mind and have their voices heard in a psychologically safe space where um, they didn't feel that um, their voice would be taken for granted. So um, this has been a massive 
revolution in how we think about collaboration and inclusion by using these technologies to bring in many different kinds of ideas and voices that previously um, we didn't even think about. And the benefit of this is that the more voices and the more ideas you have, the better kind of innovation that your organization is going to have. Um, what I understood from your book is also not only that we're opening this type of um, conversation to people within the company, which maybe they never got to the board meetings, but did I get it right that you're also saying that we could outsource, crowdsource outside and team out, not only with our own team, but now we have access to, you know, internationally bring and partnership with so many others that it was difficult before. Absolutely. We were, again, focused on having the resources in the physical environment and the pandemic work from home environment forced us to be creative as to how we create partnerships and how do we think about relationships, not just inside our organization, but now inviting other partners, supply chain uh, vendors um, to your particular meeting so that you can co-create new solutions together. And it was very easy to do that because all you had to do was jump on a Zoom and invite your partners into the conversation. So we went from a world where you were focused very much on um, who were the people physically in your office to a world where you can tap into the cognitive intelligence of all your uh, business partners, whether they were employees or whether they were vendors or there were people who were contractors that you hired on, uh, on the other side of town or on the other side of the world to help you ideate these new, uh, new, new solutions to problems. So the pandemic really allowed us to think about how do we maximize collaboration not just inside the four walls of the company, but how do you team out to really crowdsource these great ideas for problems uh, externally with your vendors and partners as well? This brings me to the um, idea. My husband was in Hong Kong and um, had to keep flying there because the idea was that he had to be in Hong Kong. Um, the manufacturings were in you know, China, and then there were another company in London, and then the team was in US, East Coast and West Coast. And um, a lot of this was the idea of still you had to fly in and out. And since the pandemic, he's been, uh, like you said, connecting to the world because there was no other way. Everybody adapted. And um, it's amazing that, um, you know, it's been, it has become so efficient just because they had to do it and they had to have the flexibility to try on something new. Um, you also talked about promoting team resilience. You have a chapter on uh, promoting team resilience, which I'm sure you have the new uh, and the latest data, which uh, the essence of people not going back to work or they're going back to work and they're quitting. And a lot of them are just saying, I'm burned out. I just don't want to go back. I've had the opportunity to kind of like ponder and see, is this the environment or is this the work that I want to do? And some of it has to do with this essence of, um, you know, uh, not feeling valued, not feeling like, you know, they're not, their voice is not, their voice is not being heard, or they're not passionate about what they're doing, or the whole culture kind of killed the passion. And uh, you talk about how to diagnose the resiliency of, of the team as a leader, and um, how to be able to talk, uh, create an environment where people can share honestly and candidly about you know whatever is going on and for their voices to be heard and see that they are part of the team and they do matter. Um, and then you know resourcefulness and then um, humanity. And I think one of the beautiful words that I saw in your book is gratiosity instead of grandiosity, <laughs> uh, the gratiosity of uh, the combining gratitude and generosity. Uh, that was a handful, I'm just gonna give you uh, the ball to, for, to explain all of this to us. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm so glad you brought up this idea of the great resignation. People are absolutely exhausted from the last two years. People worked harder than they had ever have. And so the downside of being on Zoom was that you could always be on Zoom and people sometimes had 12-hour days and they were just exhausted. And so when the crisis hit, we were working very quickly. Everybody was working long hours to innovate and adapt. And we did that because we had to. We had no other choice in the crisis. Now, when you keep doing that kind of very like 
um, uh, stressful, agile sprints, um, it's natural that you become exhausted. And so you need to build in this capability to have a resilient team to be able to constantly iterate and go forward. And people are exhausted from what happened the last two years. And so they're resigning to say, I don't want that anymore. I, my voice wasn't heard or I'm, I've worked too hard and I'm going to go find another work. And so the research that we did um, and the practices that we uh, present in the research and the book is really a, a tool and a resource for leadership teams and leaders who want to be able to combat this great resignation to change their culture, which, is, which means building a more inclusive, collaborative uh, culture, which we talked about just a few minutes ago, how you do that. And then also building teams that are resilient and that can go forward. And so the whole idea of resilient teams is that resilient, resilience isn't just one person's individual responsibility. It's everybody on the team's responsibility. How do you help your teammates cross the finish line together? There are days where you're going to have a, a good day and I may be having a bad day on the team and vice versa. So how do you think about that kind of energy level on your team? And there are specific practices that um, leaders at any kind of level, any kind of team can deploy to better understand what's the energy level of their team. One really simple way is to model that behavior for a leader um, and to start out initially asking a very simple question. Um, doing a personal professional check-in is what we call it. And the simple question is ask everybody in your team, what is sweet and sour in your life today? What's one thing that's you're really sweet that's making you really happy? What's one thing that's sour um, that's maybe not going the way you want it to go? And this is just an easy way to start up the conversation on your team every day to better understand where they are at. The reality is during the pandemic, over 40% of working adults had mental health issues that they didn't have previously. The level of anxiety went up four times compared to the past. So how do we be able to actually uh, mitigate some of these issues? It starts by creating a culture um, of safety and resilience within the organization. One practice we ask is, or we recommend is oftentimes um, doing a, some sort of survey within your team. How are you feeling today? How are you feeling this week? Um, what's on your plate that is uh, not working out so much? And you can do this via survey. You can do this with a poll, you could do this with just a random conversation, um, but you have to ask as a leader, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling this week? Um, and then the second thing is, um, you might remember if you go into big box stores like Target or Best Buy, um, when you walk out the store, they have like a little stand with a couple happy faces on it, like a green happy face or a red unhappy face. They're trying to measure consumer sentiment inside that store. And that's just a way of figuring out, well, how do people feel inside that store? Very similarly, as a team leader, it's your responsibility to figure out how your team is feeling on that week. And then are you modeling behavior that you want to see? Are you being vulnerable? Are you sharing what's not working in your particular day um, that you need help with? The idea with team resilience is that there are days that one person is going to do better than the other, but the teams that are most successful are the ones that um, help each other cross the finish line together. Um, Kian, this just brought up a conversation for me. When I've done uh, team building, when I've done you know, uh, coaching for businesses, and when I've done therapy with people, one of the um, breakdowns becomes where they want to share what's going on with them and their vulnerabilities. And they do it a lot with their team members. But when the, uh, the company has the culture of hierarchy, obviously, almost, you know, all cultures have some sorts of hierarchy. Um, there's this uh, fear or shyness about sharing your vulnerability with your team leader or the upper management because they're afraid that that's going to be utilized um, in a negative way for them when the evaluations show up or they're going to give them more, you know, to a, another lens to look at them from the vulnerability. What is your suggestion based on your research and your book in how to open this, this um, essence of care, empathy, love for, you know, your team and people who are working for you and still hold that essence of culture where, the, you know, on the next evaluation, the person doesn't feel betrayed by sharing with you some of their uh, personal experiences. Well, I'm glad you asked that. It definitely goes back to the leader and how they behave. Um, and um, this, this research and book is really trying to change leaders and how they 
uh, manage teams because the reality is if unless they change the way they manage their teams, they are going to suffer from the issues of what we talked about, people leaving and unhappiness. And they want to go back to the way things were. They want to go back to work. But the reality is that just doesn't work anymore. And so leaders really need to change their mindset. And one of the first things we, they have to do is become much more vulnerable and open to having that conversation themselves. They need to start that conversation in a larger setting. The second thing you mentioned is people may not feel safe in terms of sharing this information. Let's say you have a, um, a Zoom meeting of your team or let's say entire company of let's say 50 people um, now you have the CEO or the president, whomever is the leader of that organization, sets the stage and says, these are the issues that, that I am personally dealing with, and I would like you to share that with your team. Then you break out into small breakout rooms, no more than three people, three people max, um, and then you create a space for those individuals, their team members to have that conversation. Now you have to do the second thing as well, which is really important. Open a Google Doc, uh, a, a Google Doc that everybody can share, um, make it anonymous, um, so that the people on that Google Doc in these small breakout rooms can type out how they're feeling and how their teammates are feeling in this shared Google Doc. So that is now being captured in sentiment that the leaders can ultimately see. Now, it's not associated with a particular individual. It can be if you wanted to. But the idea is that first making it a very small breakout. So you're creating a psychologically safe space for people to share how they're feeling. The second thing is then capturing it in a Google Doc um, with or without names. So that way you can see across the entire organization or people who are involved in this meeting, how, what the sentiment of that group is. And then it goes back to the leader that says, this is what I'm seeing and I need to be able to fix this and change this. It ultimately comes back to them. It's their responsibility. Otherwise they're going to suffer the losses from the great resignation. So one thing that you share in, the, uh, in your book and to bridge it to what you just said is co-create solutions for acute stressors. And um, if, if the space is not punitive, if the space feels safe, cared for, that if I hear that you have a stressor and what is it that as a team, we can come together to take that away? We, you know, we might not be the, the group that is going to take care of your personal issues. However, if we know that people are different, have different sensitivities, how can the team come together hearing, listening, reading, whatever is happening, and then together come towards solutions where at least the stress at, at work becomes less and together we can focus. And one of the things you've said in your book is uh, the team keeps focusing on what is uh, the project, where it needs to go, and how together they can come toward, you know, focusing on that versus having a personal, you know, focusing on personality issues with each other. Right, exactly. So one of the things that I think is really critical for teams to do post, um, let's say, in this new world of work is to create a social contract of how do we behave as a team together. Um, when we're in a crisis mode, it's very easy to say, uh, Fujian, you do this. Kian, I do that. We'll just get it done and we just go and do it. We agree what the contract is immediately. But it's not so normal in the new, in, in regular work to say, what's our social contract? How do we expect our team to behave? And one of the things that we recommend, which is critical, is to create that social contract within teams um, to say, these are the kinds of behaviors that we want to see. And these are the kind of behaviors that we help each other with. And when somebody is having difficulty on this particular project, it's our responsibility to go and um, see how we can help them get to the finish line. This recontracting is really, really important. Um, and it happens oftentimes in, in crisis situations, but it doesn't happen in normal times. So I would love to impress upon your uh, listeners the importance of figuring out what is your new social contract within your team of how you behave and how you lead uh, in this new world of work. You talk about recontracting. I would say uh, there is never actually a contracting from the beginning. I That's think, isn't it right? Because they just, people come into a company and kind of they bring their own personal way of being and then they adapt themselves. They try to read the room and adapt themselves safely to whatever it is that is happening in there. But like you said, there's not necessarily a sit down in the team and creation of the social contract of how do we want to be with each other? How do we want to act? What are some of the rules we could create together to communicate, whether it's the best stuff or the worst stuff? And what are we going to do if, you know, if there is a conflict resolution? I think these are in the guidelines of a company, but when a team is together, rarely 
um, I've heard from companies, they actually do that. Exactly. And that's what we found in our research was that the teams that were most successful um, in the pandemic era were those that had these social contracts within teams. And that's why we think it's so important to be able to show how do you do that? And specifically, um, how can you build that within your team? That's beautiful. Competing in the new world of work. Um, Kian Gohar and uh, also Keith Farazi uh, and Noel Weyrich. I hope I said all the right, <laughs> right names. Um, everyone, you can also find the book at um, the website radicallyadapt.com. Um, and uh, you can also find Keon at his Twitter at Radical Adaptability. Keon, if you were going to um, share with us something that was so important in your research, in your own experience throughout all these years with the Fortune 500 companies, and um, if you were going to share something we didn't share so far, and you really think it's a jewel that people need to know, what would that be? Um, I would say that the future is full of uncertainty. And while you think that um, we're going to go back to the way that things were, um, I would really encourage you to think about how do you build your muscle for radical adaptability? How do you really think about making yourself future-proofed in a world where you don't know what the next um, external crisis is going to be, whether that's technology disruption, whether it's a, a biohazard like a pandemic, or whether it's an economic recession? you have to be able to build this muscle to be able to constantly bounce back and bounce forward no matter what the future brings. And through our research, through over a decade of doing this kind of work with companies and organizations, um, the best teams are those that are able to really develop this muscle um, on everybody on the team. So um, this is uh, the one lesson, one takeaway I hope is that how do you future-proof your team and yourself and your organization um, is by building that less than muscle for adaptability. And get coaching. <laughs> and get coaching. Sometimes you get, sometimes you get coaching internally, which is fantastic. Um, but sometimes you need to have an external coach like yourself or others to come in and share an outsider's perspective so that they can help you see the blind spots that you have so that you can become a better uh, uh, optimized team. Yes, because what I, I've seen also, even just with individuals in their own world, people who um, got caught into some of the ways that they've done things well and it kept working, um, even in the time of stress, because those ropes had worked before, they keep going back to the same okay. one. So sure. the coaching had allowed them to show that they can take their strength, but use something else. And then when you look at the, the, the businesses, the same thing, if a business was so successful in one way or another, although the world is changing, they keep going back to the old ways. And that's where outside coaches really help. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, we're never going to go back to work. We're always going to go forward to this new world. Yes. Competing in the new world of work. Uh, Keon Gohar, Keith Farazi and Noel Wayright. Please, please go to uh, the website radicallyadapt.com and find Keon at his Twitter radically adaptable at radical, radical adaptability. Thank you so much for taking the time and being with us. Thank you so much, Fujian. It was my pleasure and honor. Take good care of yourself and everyone out there. Create an amazing world for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.